So uh, I want to start out this morning uh, with an imaginary uh, party. And uh, we've been in the book of Habakkuk. Oh, sorry. Anthony's telling me to take off my mask. So I got so used to it being on. So uh, we've got, we're in the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a, a book, a uh, short book, one of the minor prophets. And uh, I wanted to start today by this imaginary setting. Uh, you're, go- you're invited to a party, and this is before COVID-19, so you could actually kind of uh, move around the room and talk to people face-to-face. And uh, if you're an introvert like me, uh, usually what happens is this, there is this internal conversation that you really ought to go over and talk to somebody. So uh, you go over and talk to somebody who's standing in the corner, and uh, because you don't know what to say to them, uh, you ask a benign question like, uh, what, do you, what do you do for a living? And they say, well, I'm in corporate acquisitions. And you think, well, where do you go from there? You know, that doesn't give you much of an opening. If somebody said that they were a rodeo clown, there's a lot of questions that you could ask. You know, like, do you make sure that the barrel's big enough for you before you get into the ring or something like that? But acquisitions, what does that actually mean? Well, if you're like me, you'll go home and you'll look it up. And uh, this is what it says. An acquisition is when one company purchases most or all of another company's shares to gain control of that company. Acquisitions, which are very common in business, may occur with the target company's approval or in spite of its disapproval. And that got me to thinking, if there is disapproval by the company that's being acquired, what does that do to the employees that are there? And I can think of a number of different things. Uh, one of the things that they might worry about is whether they're going to have employment anymore. Will they have the same kind of benefits that they always had? Those people who are in leadership positions, will they lose that leadership position and be demoted? Or maybe they just simply will lose their jobs, period, and have to move away. And what about the motivation for working in that company? Maybe they join that company because of what that company does. And all of that motivation may be lost. Maybe even the name of the company will be wiped off the face of the earth and no one will hear of it again. You know, God is telling Habakkuk in this book that we've been reading that the Babylonians are about to acquire Israel. There were reasons why the Israelites were acquired by the Babylons. From the Babylonian perspective, they were simply an empire that's trying to get bigger, to get wealthier, to be able to take over more of the earth. Wealth was a big motivation for them. But from God's perspective, or Habakkuk's perspective, it was a matter of bad management for the Israelites. They were focused on their own goals. The rich were getting richer. They were taking advantage of the poor. It was systemic. And they were not following God and were not giving glory to him. They weren't worshiping God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And this acquisition that was going to happen was definitely a hostile takeover. So what are the fears that Habakkuk's fearing during this time? He's fearing a loss of mission. The Israelites were there to give glory to God, and if they were taken over by the Babylonians, they could no longer do that. There was a loss of identity as the people of God. If they could no longer serve God, 
in their own country. What does that mean to be a covenant people when they're not together? There's the destruction of their faith as they knew it. The temple would be destroyed by the, by the Babylonians. It was knocked down stone by stone and then burned with fire. And then they were going to be exiled, uh, living as a stranger in a foreign land. Now, God, Habakkuk had originally been in favor of a little justice action by God. The rich had taken advantage of the poor, as I'd said earlier. And it was systemic. It was written into the legal system. And there is the blood of injustice in the streets of Jerusalem as people are taking other people's lives for their own good. Most of the common folk had been enslaved. We learned that from the prophet uh, Jeremiah. And then there was idols and witchcraft all over the city. But a wholesale takeover by another nation was not what Habakkuk had in mind. Babylon was violent, merciless, cruel, brutal, cold-blooded, savage, vicious. You can go on with as many adjectives as you want. You get the idea. And they would be gobbling up all of the nations in the region of Israel and terrorizing all of their people, not just those who were in control, but also women and children, the weak, the vulnerable, as well as the politically connected. The Israelites have no foundation for any complaint, however. God is simply doing what he always promised that he would do. And going back to the book of Deuteronomy, when he gave them the law, he said that if they disobeyed the law, if they were not faithful to the covenant, then God would exile them to another country. And that's exactly what's happening now. To Habakkuk, the cure is worse than the illness. The punishment is greater than the crime. You know, the Babylon event in the Old Testament reshapes the way biblical people see history. For the Israelites, the great act of redemption was for God to take them out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. But with the Babylonian exile, the people were moved away, and Babylon actually becomes the representation for everything that is evil and wicked in the world. So much so that in the book of Revelation, it is Babylon that has to fall before Jesus returns again. It represents all the wickedness and sin and corruption, human and otherwise, in the world. And as Habakkuk looks at the rising of the Babylon Empire, he cannot see beyond it. He's simply looking out and wondering what is going to come next. It's the end. And God said to him, as Anthony talked about last week, wait, there is something coming, but in the meantime, there's suffering. Now, not all the suffering that we experience in our lives is a result of sin, as it was for the Israelites here. But many times it is. It is the result of thoughtlessness or a rash word or a rash action that we didn't think through. And the result of that is often fear, fear of the future, helplessness, anxiety, hopelessness in our lives. Our sin is not a light thing. We're promised that anyone who turns to the Lord can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
But at the same time, the relationships that we have with one another frequently cannot be healed. And sometimes they are never healed this side of the kingdom. So even here, as Habakkuk hears about the Babylonians coming because of their sin, you can imagine his dejection as God never says a word of restoration to him. He simply says that it's coming. But God does address the fate of the Babylonians in the passage we're going to read this morning. All the nations that were once overcome by them will one day taunt the Babylonians because of her fall. They will ridicule her king, treating him with scorn. And this is what Habakkuk writes down as God provides him the words about the future of Babylon. Now, we're going to read a lot of words here in chapter 2, and Hebrew poetry is not easy at its best, but I want to try to help us to walk through this together as after we read the passage. So let me, let us read it together. It's um, Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. You can follow on the screen or in your Bibles. This is what, this is what Habakkuk, what is written in Habakkuk. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, and that's all the nations around that were conquered by the Babylonians, with scoffing and riddles for him, meaning the king of Babylon, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations, All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire. And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, Awake, and to silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in all of it, at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, if you noticed, as we were reading through the passage, there are five woes that are pronounced against Babylon. And actually, these are not only the only set of woes that there are in Scripture. So, for instance, in Isaiah 5, 
there are six woes against the unjust leaders of the Israelites. In Matthew 23, there are seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees for the ways that they're leading people astray. And in Revelation, there are three woes against the people of the earth as judgment comes upon them. But in Habakkuk here, we have five woes against Babylon. And each of the woes emphasizes something different, though they're not mutually exclusive to one another. The woes apply broadly. When Jesus gives his woes to the Pharisees and scribes, it's good for us to listen in on those woes because they, t- they warn us of things that we can do ourselves that will build, bring separation between us and God. And so it is with the woes in Babylon. Any nation, individual, or group of people who hear woes against Babylon should be warned not to act as they acted, or they will experience the judgment of God in the same way. So I'm not going to cover every single woe in detail, but let's take a look at these together. Woe one, and I've tried to summarize each of them for you. Woe to those who acquire goods dishonestly, for one day it will all come due at your expense. Imagine someone who just wants to acquire as much as they can for their comfort and luxury. They're taking loan after loan out to anyone that will lend them money but none of it actually belongs to them. It belongs to somebody else, to those who gave them. They're living beyond their means. All that you have taken will need to be repaid. You've heaped up debt upon debt, and soon the loan will come due, is what the Lord says to the Babylonians and any of us that live in the same way. You've taken what really belongs to the poor and weaker nations just to get rich. But someday, they will all call in their pledges you have made. The ones you've plundered will plunder you. You've unjustly shed blood and done violence, and one day justice and violence will be done to you. And what that reminds us is that everything that we have, we have from the Lord. To pretend that the one with the most toys, the most comfort, the most luxury, wins in the end, is is to ignore God's rightful claim on our lives. Especially if we do that to the detriment of those that are weaker than us, which almost ultimately we end up doing simply because of the systematic way that sin works its way into our cultures. Woe to. Woe to those who seek to make themselves and their stolen riches secure, for security is a delusion. The nature of amassing wealth leads us to make this wealth secure. So we put locks on our doors and windows. We store our money in a bank. We buy sophisticated security systems for our houses. We protect ourselves digitally. Not that any of these are wrong in themselves, unless what they're revealing underneath is a heart that believes that security measures will save us in the end, rather than the Lord. The house of the ruler of Babylon seeks to secure his legacy, to make it as safe as an eagle's nest, which is in the cleft of the rock where no one can reach it. And if you know anything about history, uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's age, who was the king of Babylon when they conquered Israel, 
there was purportedly a defensive wall around the palatial complex that was 136 feet thick with stone and earth. But God says that the stones of the wall will cry out because of the violence that the Babylonian armies have done. They've acted in in injustice and violence, so they will be on the receiving end of violence and be destroyed. Woe 3, verses 12 to 14. Woe to those who seek to build empires by violence and power, for it will all go up in smoke. You know, it takes an enormous amount of energy and strategy and design to build an empire, whether it's a personal empire that you build for yourself or whether it's an empire for a nation. You can put all your effort into it, obsess over it, be as busy as you want to about all of it, but none of this can keep it from falling. So we ask ourselves, what are we working for in our lives? Are we working for our own personal empires. If it is anything less than knowing Christ and making him known, it will be considered wood, hay, and stubble by God. Paul gives us a warning in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, and that's the foundation of God's kingdom, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So as we build our empires, we need to be reminded of Jesus' words in Mark 8. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? All this sound and fury of kingdom building ends in nothing, is what Habakkuk's words say. They're futile. It will all go up in smoke. The Babylonians burnt the cities that they conquered, just as they did Jerusalem when they were there. And so their their work will also be burned up. And as if there's an answer to all this kingdom building, Habakkuk calls the Babylonians, to recognize that God ultimately is the one that lasts. And so he quotes these words from Isaiah 9:11. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's kingdom is the only kingdom finally established in mercy and justice for the sake of the humble and weak. Woe 4, verses 15 to 17. Woe to those who seek to shame others, for they will be utterly disgraced. The picture is of someone who's trying to get another person drunk. And the reason they're getting another person drunk is because they want them to do the things that they want them to do, often to the public shame of the person who drank. There's a lot of talk of cups of wrath in the Bible one of them being here, Babylon makes the other nations drink their cup of wrath to shame them. But God also has a cup of wrath reserved for Babylon, and all that they intended to do to others will be done to them. Psalm 75, 8 says these words, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. 
and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. One of the contemporaries of Habakkuk was Jeremiah the prophet, and one of the tasks that God gave Jeremiah the prophet was to go to all the neighboring nations around and give them the cup of wrath to drink from the Lord, and finally to give it to Babylon itself and to drink that cup. And this is what he writes in chapter 25 of Jeremiah. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. And so with Babylon or any other earthly kingdom. Woe 5, verses 18 and 19. Woe to the one who trusts in idols, and their strength is your weak, for their strength is your weakness. When you make an idol and you rely on it, you're simply relying on yourselves, says the Lord. What made it a God is us. Can it teach us anything that we don't already know, or teach us anything that we don't make it say? Idols may be coated with silver and gold, and they look glorious, but they're only imposters, is what Habakkuk writes. Idols lead us away from God. They preach self-reliance. And every time that we are reliant upon ourselves, we are building an idol. It cannot save us. It cannot do anything on its own. In reality, we simply make ourselves slaves of the very thing that we built. We do all we can to make it appear to have life, but it has none. It has no energy, and no matter how much we work at making it strong, it will all come to nothing. So Derek Kidner writes, Lifeless idols approached in clamor or silence, while the living God approached in silence and reverence speaks. God acts and speaks on his own in accordance with his power and mercy and justice. And the conclusion of all of that is Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk knew what was coming, and he knew his own helplessness in that, and worse, the helplessness of his people, the helplessness of his people. And yet he knows that God is above it all. So Psalm 11 has these words. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If your foundations are destroyed, what can you do? And the answer is nothing. You can do nothing. But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And as Habakkuk stands at his station and waits... It's difficult to see what is beyond Babylon for him. The coming destruction blinds his thoughts. It obsesses his minds. It captures them. And when we think about the things that happen in our lives that are traumatic, the things that we lose or the things that we're afraid of losing or the things that we know that we might lose down the road, our minds obsess about them. We become dejected. We, become, we lose heart. We lose faith. It tempts us to obsess over our fears and worries, maybe even over the the, um, 
the result of our country that we live in. Some of us experienced that on January 6th, and the question was raised, is this the end of democracy? But there are other events in our lives as well, violence in our neighborhoods, in our own neighborhoods, threats, difficulties between people, traumatic experiences that we experience, the loss of what we hold dearest. But God stands above it all and assures us, for the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what that means for all of us is that everything in this life, on this side of the kingdom, is temporary. Certainly the bad stuff is. And we know that. We've been taught that. But so is the good stuff that tempts us to move away from our reliance to God and on to them. Every time we cling to the temporary, we lose sight of the permanent. In the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon is there, and the fall of Babylon happens in chapter 18. And after that happens, these are the things that happen after it. When the smoke clears, we see the marriage of the Lamb to his people, to the church. We see the rider who is faithful and true, who comes on his white horse, who is Jesus Christ, the conqueror over all. We see the throne of judgment is set up, and true justice is established. True justice and mercy is established. There's a new heaven and a new earth that comes. And then there's the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, which is there and has no temple in it because God actually lives within the midst of that city. And we're encouraged, and we're encouraged in chapter 22 of Revelation to remember that Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. So that whatever Babylons are before us, whether it's the one in Habakkuk's day, or one in our day, or the one that is yet to come, they might be shown to be fading and temporary, and give way to what is true and permanent in Jesus. And this is what Habakkuk could not see clearly, but it's the hope of everyone who does not mistake the temporary for the permanent. Let's pause and pray together. Father, we recognize that our own hearts quickly move to believe the things that are of this world are permanent. We ask, Father, that you would remind us that whether we thrive or whether we are failing, that you are behind it all, that you will establish your kingdom, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, and that you are in heaven and you stand above it all. Lord, guide our hearts and our thoughts as we face the difficulties in our own lives and work your will out in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.